1: Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Paul Klemmer, who is an English travel writer who has written over 40 books for The Lonely Planet, and he has also written the only English language guidebook of Haiti for Brad's Travel Guide. Today, we're going to be discussing his magnificent new book entitled Black Crown, Henri Christopher, The Haitian Revolution. and the Caribbean's Forgotten Kingdom. Mr. Klammer, thank you for joining me today.
0: It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: So can you tell us a little bit about the book?
0: So Black Crown is essentially a sort of a dual biography. It's a biography of Henri Christophe, who was born enslaved in the Caribbean. And uh, it's the story of his life. He was eventually crowned or crowned himself the King of Haiti, but in parallel to that, um, it tells the story of the Haitian Revolution, because uh, Christophe was one of the leading generals under Toussaint Louverture during the revolution. So it, we're sort of looking at the, uh, the period of the revolution, but also what happened after 1804, after, after Haiti claimed its independence, which is, although the story of the Haitian Revolution is becoming a little bit better known, sort of publicly, uh, the story of what happened afterwards is perhaps a little less known. So, so the book is very much an exploration of that.
1: I mean, it's a great book. That's what I want to say first off. So how did you end up selecting Henri Christopher as your topic?
0: So um, in my work as a travel writer, uh, I first went to travel, went to traveling in Haiti in 2007 for for Lonely Planet. Um, And in 2011, I actually uh, moved to Haiti where I lived for a year. I rented an apartment in in Port-au-Prince to write my guidebook for Brat Travel Guides um and as a as a travel writer um i found it is the the history of haiti to be incredibly engaging because particularly when you travel in the north of haiti you can sort of see the vestiges of the haitian revolution sort of literally written across the landscape you can see the old battlefields you can see a lot of the the architecture and particularly the architecture of the independence period when i suppose the most celebrated um sort of site um, associated with that period is the the citadel Henri, sometimes called the citadel um, which is actually the largest fortress in the western hemisphere it's it's an enormous fort um, a piece of really cutting-edge early 19th century military architecture that's on a on top of a mountain just a a very short distance away from the second city of haiti cap Haitien. and the the citadel was built by christophe um, and it, it really serves as this incredible totem, this, this symbol of independence and of the achievements of the, the Haitian Revolution. And for a long time, I explored the idea of just a sort of a travel writing project uh, based around uh, the revolution, based around uh, the Citadel and, and Christophe's Palace of Sans Souci, which is, although ruined, is, is at the foot of the Citadel and another incredible place. Almost like a sort of a, a Vassai of the Caribbean. Uh, I could never find the hook. I could never find the the the, the right angle. Um, and I was working in Kingston, Jamaica, on a on a different guidebook project. And a friend had said, "You should visit the um, the National Archives in the National Library in 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 Kingston because they have some interesting papers related to to Christoph and to this period." And this is something she knew I was very interested in, and. I'm a, I'm a travel writer by trade. I, I'm not uh, an academic historian. It was my first time working in the archives um, and I was hooked. Instantly, I was I hook line and sinker. Um, and I very quickly established uh, that a lot of papers relating to this period are actually in the UK in places like the National Archives, the British Library, King's College, University, London um so it was quite easy for me to sort of very quickly just get an idea of of some of the the papers that were out there and then I was really um away you know at the races um and fortunately my work writing guidebooks meant that I could often route flights to where I was working um through places like New York or Boston so I could go and do some archive work there um as well as doing archive work actually in haiti itself and doing sort of a lot of field work in terms of visiting a lot more of the sort of a lot of the very more obscure sites associated with the revolution and and with christophe um should we say and this just really went there's an ongoing project really a, a personal project um just for quite a number of years um until we had lockdown, until we had COVID. Um, and working as a freelance travel writer is not a very lucrative um, way of making a living when no one in the world can go traveling. Um, so this was really my lockdown baby. So I, I, I was able to spend that time and, and really sit down and write and, and, uh, and, and eventually sell the manuscript. And um, so it, I, I joke that it's my my, uh, my travel writing project gone wrong, um, but certainly the more time I spent um, with the papers, with the archive, um, you know, just this extraordinary story revealed itself, you know, and I, I just had to sort of to get that down on paper. And I should say um, that as a, as a non-academic, I, being welcomed into the sort of the community of, of Haitian studies scholars has been really, really wonderful. And and Haitian studies has been a, a wonderful place for me um, to spend time. And, and, you know, I, I, I certainly know that uh, a lot of my work relies on some of the brilliant work that's been done in this field over the last 10 and 20 years. So just being able to be part of that and add a little bit extra to that that wider story has been an absolute pleasure.
1: Well, you know, I can say that it was a travel writing gone project gone right because you did a fabulous job and something that needed to be done, which brings me to the next question I want to ask. You know, there is how do you think most people think about um, Henri Christopher and the Haitian Revolution?
0: Um, well, I'll take this the, 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 the answer about Christophe first. I don't think people think about him at all. Um, the Haitian Revolution, uh, I mean, certainly it's not something that I learned about in school um it's not something certainly in in, in the uk that, that most people really know a lot about we're, we're very familiar with uh the american revolution we're, we're very familiar with the french revolution of course um but the haitian revolution for me the the third and the greatest of these these three atlantic revolutions at the end of the 18th century because it was the one the only one that that promised true freedom uh for all people irrespective of their race um this is something that has not, not been taught a lot. And, of course, the great scholar Michel Rolf uh wrote a lot about this in, in Silencing the Past um, and how the, the story of the Haitian Revolution has been, has been silenced. Um, but while in the last 10, certainly, years or so, um, I think there's a lot more public discourse about the Haitian Revolution, Um, But a lot of this is often focused around, of course, the figure of Toussaint Louverture. He's the the name that most people will recognise if they know anything about the the Haitian Revolution. There have been almost half a dozen biographies of of him written in the last um, 20 or so years. Uh, But the stories of some of the other participants, not just Christophe, but uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who was the man who actually proclaimed independence for Haiti in in January 1st, 1804. These are stories that now, I think, Haitian Studies is sort of ready to, to, to share those because we've got that, that body of scholarship. People who have been working on Haitian revolutionary studies over the last couple of decades. Um, so we're ready to really expand that story. And I, I hope that, that uh, the background can be a part of that conversation.
1: It most definitely is. Um, and you mentioned it a few moments ago that you were, that there are archives that you found in actually the UK and some. And so what was kind of like your source base that you were going to, besides the ones that are in Haiti, you know, what were you looking at? Manuscripts? Um, what were you looking at?
0: Yeah, almost everything uh, is from primary sources. And actually, I think it's an interesting question. Another reason why it's taken so long for the, for the wider story of the Haitian Revolution so to sort of become better known is that the, the written archive is scattered across the world. So, you know, by strange accidents of imperial history, there happens to be a lot of material here in the UK, in London and elsewhere. Uh, there is, of course, from the colonial period, a lot of papers in, in France in different archives. There are archives across the States, across the Caribbean, um, and as well, of course, as in Haiti itself. So, accessing these really, really disparate archives in, in many different countries, I think, has, has been a challenge um, and is just very time consuming. And, and, you know, it has to be, you know, expensive, an expensive enterprise. Um, So pulling those together, I think it's just now in in these last couple of decades, this has just really started to sort of to to happen in a a much more involved way. Um, So we're very fortunate with with Christoph. He was quite a prolific uh, letter writer. So we have a lot of his papers. Uh, He had a lot of interactions, uh, particularly with uh, with British officials after independence. So there are a lot of that's one reason why there are a lot of papers uh, in London in particular. Um, But also one of the great treasures that we have is that um, independent Haiti, um, including the Kingdom of Haiti, were actually great producers of the written word themselves. Um, So as well as uh, manuscript material um, from that period, we also have access to a lot of the newspapers that Haitians were were writing and printing themselves. We have access to a lot of the uh, pamphlets um, and the books. Uh, that independent Haiti was producing. And there are many writers like uh, Baron de Bate and Juste Chanlat These were Haitians who were telling their own stories. I mean, of course, they're in French. They weren't necessarily distributed um, as widely um, outside uh, Haiti as, as, as we might hope they would have been. Um, but it was something, when I was writing the book, very conscious, um, always wherever possible, to, to foreground the work of contemporary Haitian writers. And then, of course, throughout the 19th century, uh, Haitian historians who were writing those sort of first um, histories of Haiti, uh, particularly from the sort of the middle of the 19th century, and building on those narratives, obviously interrogating those sources that they're using. Um, But actually, once you really start um, scraping away um, there's an enormous wealth of material to uh, to to write from. I mean, you know, I probably managed to use about a quarter of it in the book. You know, I, I but you have to eventually make the decision to stop somewhere, otherwise the book would would still be a, a, a long list of files and folders on my laptop.
1: That makes a lot of sense. But well, I want to say, you know, right here, right now, one of the things I think it's so nice to hear and from listeners to hear is that there is an archive, and that there also that was written by Haitians at that time, you know, because there's just these ideas of, you know, who formerly enslaved people were and what they could and could not do, but they were actually producing their own literature and text during this time and talking about what freedom meant to them. Um, So it's very nice. Granted, it's in French, um, but it's nice to know that that archive, that it exists, that it is there. Um, for scholars to look at
0: absolutely <laughs> um and just to, sort of to add on to that um being able to spend through my work spend time actually in haiti uh talking with and learning from haitian revol- uh, haitian historians themselves but also just really being able to kind of immerse oneself in the landscape because i think there's a lot to be said for being able to to spend time in these places, and you start to understand how different aspects of the revolution happened, particularly in northern Haiti, where you will have um, the site where uh, Toussaint Louverture was born, the plantation where he was born, which is literally just two or three miles down the road um, from the place where the uh, the the voodoo ceremony, the the, the inciting moment of the Haitian revolution took place, which is again in a, in a different direction, a couple of miles away from the site of the last, the last battle where the French armies were defeated. So really understanding how this kind of compact landscape um, fits together, you know, really helped um, enormously with, with my understanding um, of, of the revolution.
1: I know. That just sounds so amazing to be able to visit that landscape as you're writing. So, you know, you mentioned that archival, the archives are across the world. Was that, you know, for most, what would you say would be some of the biggest challenges you faced in writing about Henri Christopher's life and the Haitian Revolution?
0: Um, well, I suppose um, in a in a flippant way, it's, it's having to deal with sources in French. And my, my French has come along leaps and bounds, um, since starting this project, um, that access to archives, um, you know, of course, many I was able to get to many I, I, I wasn't. And, and I, I must give thanks uh, to the many scholars who were, were particularly generous in, in sharing their own papers uh, with me, particularly, in the final stages of the research, I left um, a lot of the research that I was going to do in, in France um qu- quite late in the in the day as it turned out. And of course when I was writing then travel, you know, wasn't possible because of, of, of COVID. And and some of the scholars incredibly kind um in sharing some of their um resources. Um, like anyone else I suppose working in this in this time, um, you always open a, a new letter, a new document and and sort of give a little prayer to the to the gods um that the person you're reading has got good handwriting. Um, it's, I mean, it's a, kind of a silly comment to, 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 make, but, uh, I'm always amazed particularly having, dealing with, uh, the letters of Will, William Wilberforce, I'm amazed, um, he ever managed to abolish anything because he has one of the worst um, writing I've, I've ever come across. Um, but yeah, access to the archives is, is always a challenge, but it's also been a, re- a really, really great opportunity and, a, and, a, and I've made the most wonderful connections in, in the process of researching the book.
1: Awesome. Was there anything that surprised you as you were researching and writing?
0: Um, I think when I started the research, um, I, I had a pretty good handle on the story of the, the Haitian Revolution. And I must confess that that, that first trip to Haiti in 2007 uh, I, I was remarkably ignorant of the story of the Haitian Revolution, and I'm very grateful for the friend who recommended that I take along a copy of Black Jacobins, um, but of course by C.L.R. James to read, which which really, you know, I found an incredibly powerful book to read in situ. So I was quite familiar when I started with the general shape um, of the the sort of the narrative of the, the Haitian Revolution. I was very much less familiar with the story of what happened after 1804. Um particularly um uh, the Haitian Civil War, which broke out in, in 1807. The country was essentially divided uh in two halves, the northern and the southern half, and and, and the, much of the book is is taken up with, with the north with North Haiti, which then becomes Christoph's Kingdom of Haiti. Um, but reading accounts from and, and mainly relying here on on the accounts of the, the 19th century Haitian historians Uh, because it's a period that's been incredibly little written about, Um, but absolutely fantastically interesting, incredibly complicated. But it's really a period of the birth pangs of independent Haiti, where you've got these two rival political systems. You've got these two rival leaders. Christophe is one, Alexandre Pétion, the the president in Port-au-Prince, is the other. These two figures really trying to sort of determine what is Haiti you know, Haiti is a new country, um, and trying to work out what the idea of Haiti is. So so learning about the, the Haitian Civil War, and then how that evolves in Christophe's mind into the kingdom of Haiti was just a really uh, fascinating journey to go on.
1: It sounds like it. I mean, it's something that most definitely most, and this is on the other side of the Atlantic, Americanists don't really think about, um, for the most part. So I want to ask you, and you said a little bit before, who was Henri Christopher?
0: Who was well, he? It, it, Christophe was, um, he was born in, in 1767. Um, this is a world of Caribbean slavery. He wasn't born in, in in the colony of Saint-Domingue, which was destined to become Haiti. He was actually born on the island of Grenada, an incredibly long way away. I mean, Grenada is very far closer to South America. Um through a series of unlikely events um he takes part in um the American Revolution he's transported um actually to Savannah in Georgia and and has a, a very small walk on part in the American Revolution before coming and and sort of settling um in the city of Cap Francais the, the the wealthiest um city in in the colony of Saint-Domingue uh, now, Cap Haitian today. Um, when the, the revolution, the Haitian revolution breaks out in, in 1791, he largely sits out the first couple of years of the revolution. But by 1793, um, this is when he really enters the scene. He he becomes a uh, an officer under Toussaint Louverture. Uh, he's an incredibly accomplished uh, man, particularly when it comes to logistics. Um, he's a competent battlefield commander, but he's a fantastic logistician, um, and he rises rapidly um, through the ranks under the, the leadership of, of Toussaint Louverture um, and becomes one of the signatories of the Haitian Declaration of Independence. Um I don't know how far we want to get on into the story Well, we can talk about how he became king, uh, but that's possibly <laughs> we'll just there. Uh, to set the scene.
1: We'll definitely get there. What I think is so fascinating, you know, it's kind of like he was, you know, both he and Toussaint, they were inspired. You know, this was 1791, 1789, the age of revolutions, you know, starting with the American War for Independence. They were there But yet, you know, the French Revolution also inspired them as well. So you can only imagine, you know, what that, the thoughts that were actually circulating during that time, especially among the enslaved population, as to what all of this meant. Um, But as you mentioned, he was a great uh, military man, but also a great legislator as well. And so when... um overture dies you know how does his death like change the dynamic of the revolt how does that change things
0: yeah i just i mean just to address the the role of the the other revolutions the the american um and the french revolution i think particularly in the early stages of the haitian revolution when when this um breaks out in august 1791 Um, there's a lot of disbelief amongst the French colonists. Of course, this is a time when the the French Revolution is is two years old. So there are are a lot of um, all sorts of revolutionary ideas in the air. And a lot of the French colonists blamed um, the the French Revolution for sort of for inciting this desire for for freedom within the, the, the enslaved population, which was around half a million people who had been born in Africa and undergone the Middle Passage. Um, and I think a lot of the French colonists at the time li- genuinely could not conceive that these enslaved people had an idea of freedom that was their own. They they didn't actually, although the the ideas of the French Revolution, you know, will, will become important. Um, that sense of the 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 need, the desire to to be free, was always there in the hearts of all of the enslaved people of of, of Saint Domingue, um, and. The discourse at the time um, to say they they sort of blamed uh, the revolutionaries coming from France, importing these these seditious ideas to the colony. Um, I think it's something just worth that's worth addressing, because um, if only to say, you know, that that these people didn't need to borrow ideas from France, they didn't need to borrow ideas from America um to, to start their own revolution. You know, they certainly, you know, were aware of those, but but this was a, a, a revolt that was very much begun on the plantations by enslaved Africans. Um so Christoph uh takes part, as I said, as a he's a, a child soldier uh in the, the Battle of Savannah um in Georgia. He's he's actually transported there. He he joins an army of free black soldiers from, from Saint Domingue the Chasseur Volontaire, um, and they take part in the the siege of Savannah, which it has to be said is, is not re- actually a great military success. Uh, but these people are often regarded popularly in in um, in Haiti um, as the sort of the the kind of the precursors, the the people who went before the revolution. Um, these but these were not actually the class of of soldiers of of the class of, of free black people who who played a great role, certainly initially in the early stages of the the Haitian Revolution. And Toussaint Louverture came from the plantations. He was free at the time of of, of independence. Uh, Sorry, free at the time of the outbreak of of the revolution. Um, But he was born enslaved on a plantation um, near Cap Francais. Um, And of course, Toussaint was, was a genius. He was an incredible battlefield commander. He was a great orator. He was a great organiser and he was a great inspirer and leader of men. Um, and in um, the spring of 1802, this is after Napoleon Bonaparte had sent a, a new armada um, with m- tens of thousands of French troops to sort of to regain control of the colony um, Toussaint Louverture. Has risen to, to such a, a state. He's a, in fact. He's the Governor General of, of Saint Domingue, and Saint Domingue is, is de facto independent. I mean, he loudly proclaims his loyalty to France, but but at this stage, um, Saint Domingue is de facto independent. And Bonaparte sends uh, this enormous army to recapture, and there's a um, there's a sort of guerrilla war, and uh, Toussaint Louverture is is captured. Uh, by the French and immediately put on a ship and and sent back to France, where within a, uh, a year he, he's dead of exposure hes he's imprisoned in a cell in, in the Jura mountains. Um, and this is the moment in the the, the, the the spring and the summer of that year where the Haitian revolution really starts to become a lot more openly a war of independence. And Christophe and Dessalines and some of the other uh, black military leadership that had sort of come in were, were kind of working with the French. There was a lot of duplicity. There was a lot of, um, you know, should we say, there were a lot of playing poker and bluffing, pretending they're working for the French, but really, you know, enacting their own plans. Um, and. Particularly from the uh, the autumn of eighteen o two, where where Christophe finally declares again uh, that he sort of that he gives up this this false idea of working for the for the French. Um, Leclerc, the, uh, the the French general who's actually uh, Bonaparte's brother in law, dies. Uh, General Rochambeau, not the Rochambeau of the the American War of Independence, um, but uh, of, his, of his family, uh, Rochambeau becomes the the French commander and and really enacts what can only be described as a, a genocidal war um, against the African population of, of 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 Haiti. And this is so. As I said, this is the time when the revolution sort of explicitly becomes a war of independence in, in, uh, in May of 1803 at a place called Arcaille, which is a small town that's now just north of um, Port-au-Prince, uh, the Haitian flag is, is, uh, is created um, where Dessalines um, sort of symbolically tears the white out of the French uh, tricolore, and a young woman named Catherine Flon stitches the, the the red and the blue back together to to create the um uh, to create the Haitian flag. Um, and from this moment on, it's a sort of a full on struggle for independence. Um, and the the French are gradually worn down through attrition, through guerrilla warfare, um, and through yellow fever and, and malaria as well. And by uh, and on the eighteenth of November, eighteen o three, the final French army is defeated on the battlefield outside Cap francais at a place place called Vertier, and the French surrender. Um, and on January the first, eighteen o four, Haitian uh, independence is declared by by Dessalines, with with Christophe being the having his uh, signature being the second on the Declaration of Independence.
1: Wow, you know, and I really liked your point that you brought to the forefront of how, you know, yes, this is the age of revolutions, but that the enslaved population of Santo Domingue, they didn't need anyone to tell them that they needed to be free. I can, you know, and most can probably not even most can imagine what their lives were like, because as you know, you know, Santa Domingue, that was the wealthiest of the colonies, but that sugar cane was actually gold. Uh, But in order to get that, there was a brutal system that was in place to do that. Um, And the, you know, physical, emotional, and in some cases for women, sexual abuse that they endured, I'm sure was horrific. So, you know, of course, at the core, they were definitely already inspired to gain their own freedom. from that system that completely sought to eradicate any parts of their own normality of having a normal life, um, just yeah, for and, economic and, gain.
0: And just to sort of put some horrific numbers on that, um, at the outbreak of the, the revolution in 1791, Sandoming was importing 40,000 kidnapped human beings to work on the plantations every year. Um, but when the revolution uh, breaks out, uh, we have to remember that a, a great number of those uh, people who had who'd undergone the, the Middle Passage um, had actually were, were, were fighters and soldiers themselves. They had, they had uh, been captured in wars in, in Africa. So when the revolution comes, there's a lot of experience of guerrilla warfare um, to to bring to this situation that the uh, the European armies couldn't cope with.
1: Right. And, you know, it was, you know, even after they came back, as you just mentioned, Bonaparte and, you know, the French, they weren't going to let them go, but they weren't the only ones who were interested in reclaiming Haiti during this time. There were many other imperial powers who also wanted to reclaim Haiti, Um during this time, because it was like, you know, the wealthiest of the colonies. So it was like up for grabs. And of course, always, that was that idea that they needed to squash the formal independence of a formally enslaved population. Um, That was just something that would send horror waves through every other system of plantation around the world during that time. And they you know, thought it would lead to mass revolts everywhere. Um, So I want to ask you, what impact did formal independence have on the enslaved population? Did it, how, you know, greatly did it change their lives?
0: I mean, the the first thing to understand is that that the the first uh, constitution of independent Haiti and the first article of that constitution declares that slavery is forever abolished in Haiti. And when I put the Haitian Revolution as I did earlier up against the French and the American Revolutions, I think this this point is is so important uh, to bear in mind that, that this is the only place where where slavery was permanently abolished. Um, in terms of the the day-to-day lives of the the newly independent the Haitians, of course, you know the idea of Haiti is is brand new. They they don't know they're Haitians yet. The idea of Haiti is is is, is still being born, and I think one of the um, the tensions that we find um, in particularly in the early years of Haitian revolution center around this idea of what freedom means when you're a nation uh, that has won its independence on the battlefield. In a world of imperial slavery, uh, where Spain, where France, where Britain are all in the Caribbean, and what, so what does it mean to be free and to maintain that freedom? And this question is absolutely crucial for the first few years of, of, of Haitian independence. If you are Christophe, um, if you are Dessaline, if you are some of these, uh, the leading um, sort of officer class Who've made this Declaration of Independence? Your argument is that freedom means nothing unless you have gunpowder and bayonets to defend it. Because you're still afraid the French might come back, that the British might come back. All of these powers can see this, as you said, this this colony that have been vastly wealthy, producing, you know, half of all of the sugar and more than that of, of coffee in the world. So looking with these not just covetous eyes, but also seeing that the idea of Haiti is just an existential threat Um, because Jamaica is just here. Cuba is just there, you know, heavy plantation systems. Um, And, and Haiti is just the ultimate bad example. So the, the Haitian leadership, uh, their argument is very much freedom is about, it means nothing without a project of national defense. And, if you are a Haitian, you have two roles to play. You you can be a soldier and help defend this freedom through force of arms, or you can be a cultivator and work on the plantations and grow the export crops that Haiti needs to buy that gunpowder. Um, now, so you don't get much of a choice um and so if you were a cultivator possibly once enslaved i mean well, possibly what are, what are you talking about you would once enslaved you may still be living on that plantation you may still be working cutting sugar cane collecting coffee you get a share of the uh, the profits um you know the whip is outlawed. all of these things but you're not sort of uh you're, you're more like a um sort of It's just sort of a form of of, of serfdom. And that's the role that you must play in national defence. Now, on the opposite side of that argument, um, if you are someone who was born maybe, let's say, in in Congo or or Dahomey or somewhere like that, you've survived the Middle Passage, you've survived this incredibly bloody revolution, your idea of what freedom and what liberty is is probably going to be a bit different. It's probably the freedom to be just completely left alone. Uh, you don't want to have anything to do with any new state building project you just want to be with uh your your new family you the, your you're building out from the from the wreckage of, of of your life from from the wreckage of of revolution and really just have your plot grow your crops and just be left alone and and this tension uh in terms of on the micro and the macro level of what freedom means is is what really dominates uh, the early independent Haitian period, the early period of Haitian independence.
1: That would make sense because I, I could definitely, you know, as I was reading the book, I could see that tension coming through because, as you say, you do have to defend yourself from other imperial powers. So you need that military support, but economically you need to pay to be able to purchase the gunpowder. And on the other side, you have the people who just, you know, slavery's over. I just want to live my life, you know, and not really be responsible to anyone else besides myself or my family. Um, I can see how those two, Competing ideas would create a very tense um, internal situation, and,
0: um, and and there is and there is no model to follow. There is there is no model for for a post-colonial state uh, with these origins to to follow. The only the only sort of post-colonial state in the Western Hemisphere at this stage is is the USA, uh, whose history and true trajectory is, of course, an entirely different one. So this is something that Haiti very much has to figure out for itself um, in a hostile world.
1: Right, that they do. And so how did Henri end up declaring himself king? Um, How did that happen?
0: Well, as as I sort of alluded to, um, Haiti divided into or was divided into by civil war quite soon um, after independence because of essentially an argument about the political system that would, uh, that would run the country. Um, and, and Dessalines uh, was assassinated in October 1806. Uh, Christophe is, is declared president, but his rival, um, Alexandre Petion, who is, is based in um, Port-au-Prince, um, sort of manages to fix the system so that although Christophe is president, the presidency becomes all but a ceremonial um, role and he has no political power. Uh, Christophe doesn't really like this much. He's the, the sort of the, the head of the Haitian army and he essentially marches his army down uh, to the gates of Port-au-Prince, uh, which he fails to capture, but essentially divides um, the country into um, for the next years, basically until until the end of, of Christophe's life. In, 18, uh, in March of 1811, uh, there's a proclamation um, that Christophe uh, has been nominated to become King Henri I of, of, of Haiti. Um, this actually comes just about a month or so after Petion is, is re-elected as president in the, in the south. Uh, I mean, it's not a sort of a, it's a, not a free election as we would understand it. He's nominated by the Senate in Port-au-Prince, um, and I think Christophe's, the, the timing of the, the announcement of the monarchy is slightly in response to that. Um, but the Council of State. For the new kingdom of haiti published this extraordinary document really explaining uh the process by which Christoph um is has been nominated to be the king and and they they say we've looked at all of the different political systems in the world and they go through them in turn um they say well we've looked at um the usa um and they're a model in so many ways uh, but we don't think this is an appropriate system for us. They look to some of the small nations, particularly in in Europe, and say, "Well, we're larger than than a country like like Belgium, but Belgium has a, a monarchy. A lot of these small European um, countries have monarchies, and what's more, these small countries in Europe are all overrun by by Napoleon Bonaparte, and and we defeated him on the battlefield. Um, so we can proclaim we can claim that honor." For ourselves, and although in the twenty first century, it seems possibly a little counterintuitive uh, for us to think of a revolution um, ending up with a monarchy. Um, of course, this was this was the default uh, political system. You know, republicanism is a very very new idea, um, and when you add into that um, the fact that, of course, the large majority of, of Haitians had been born in Africa, and so had had. Understood uh, and recognised uh, polities where there were hereditary chiefs or hereditary uh, kings. This becomes, you know, perhaps a lot more um, understandable. Um, and just the, the final piece in this this jigsaw, um, and this is, is something that's written in the official account of, of Christoph's coronation. Um, is of course the original inhabitants uh, of Haiti and of the island of Hispaniola, on which it sits, uh, were the Taíno. Uh, the, the pre-columbian population of, uh, of, of Haiti who of course by that time you know had, had um, been been you know basically were were extinct through through Spanish genocide um, but there was an account of one of the Taino chiefs uh, who had fought the Spanish uh, colonizers to to a standstill to the point where he, they actually formed a treaty with him where his sort of nominal independence was uh, was recognized and the name of this Taino, chieftain, at least in the Spanish accounts, is, is Enrique, which is the Spanish version of, of Henri. Um, and so in the official accounts of the coronation, um, Julien Provost, who is the the writer, who becomes the the wonderfully named Comte de Limonade under Christophe and becomes his Secretary of State, he cites this this account of, uh, of Enrique um, and sort of ties this uh early acts of colonial resistance, tracing that through to the resistance against the French and the development of this post-colonial state in Haiti, which is very proudly a monarchy. Um, at the banquet, uh, at the coronation banquet um, in June 1811, Christophe's first recorded words as king are raising are him raising a toast to George III in, in England, who he proclaims as his fellow brother, um, as as another um, proud king who has stood up against the, the French and has stood up against Bonaparte. And, and there's very much an act of, of claiming the equality of, of Haiti with all of the other nations of the world and, and entering that sort of um, that, that commonwealth of, of nations. Um, and it's this great declaration of national pride.
1: Wow. That is pretty amazing that he was able to accomplish that. But as you said, there are many components as to how this all came into play during that period. So I want to ask you, do you think um, that Christoph has been misrepresented?
0: Um just i mean the short answer is yes um i just just sort of to to just sort of develop that the idea of the, the 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 monarchy a little bit more one of the things um that i find most enchanting we managed to reproduce some of this in the book is that when he was crowned king he produced uh, a, a sort of an instant nobility of, of dukes and barons and princes of the blood and other figures like this, which was accompanied by an absolutely wonderful armorial um, with with heraldic devices, um, and this is a, a beautiful painted volume. It's 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 actually now in in London, uh, but it has been reprinted in full. But one of the things that I find um, very exciting about this is that the heralds who created all of this iconography were clearly very educated in terms of the traditions of Western heraldry. Um, and you see all of the usual lions and bears and stags and and all of these things and the sort of heraldic devices. But then they use a lot of African iconography and they also use a lot of Caribbean. So you'll have figures of rhinoceroses and ostriches. You'll also have figures of uh, Caribbean iguanas and manatees and figures like this. So he's really kind of claiming something that is almost sort of sui generis. it is, you know, he he proclaims himself the first crown monarch of the new world, and I think that's a really, really important statement of of national pride. And he goes on um, throughout his rule as, as, as king. He develops uh, relationships with a lot of the British abolitionists, like William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson. Um, he uh, invites uh, teachers from England to come to uh, the kingdom and set up uh, schools. Um, he invites, uh, uh, people to come and introduce smallpox vaccination. Um, and he is trying to build this. He sees himself as an enlightenment ruler and uh, trying to, to create Haiti's place, um, in, in the modern world. Um, and if you ask, um, you know, has he possibly been misrepresented? I would say that this is definitely one of those cases where history you know is written by the victors so goes the cliche um and the early histories of haiti written by haitian historians in the 19th century uh were all very much written by his opponents by people who were very strong republicans and had served in the governments of christophe's rivals so when the earliest narratives of haitian history were being set um it was very easy to write him off as um, as a despot, as uh, a tyrant, and and certainly his his rule was, you know, was was strict. I'm I'm not going to make any bones about that, um, but just to instantly um, dismiss all of his achievements as well. And I I just think that a lot of the book was trying to sort of rebalance that picture of him somewhat.
1: I agree, and you did a fabulous job of doing that because you know it's ironic. You know, he's so often either ridiculed or marginalized or in some cases just completely erased from the history books. But he did quite a few accomplishments for Haiti during a period where the country was just starting to get back to normal, just had gained its independence. It was just getting its footing in the modern world, as you say. And he did set up, you know, education, and labor systems, and, you know, vaccines, and it's all of these things, yet most often, that's forgotten, and as you say, you know, it's ironic, and the only thing I can kind of relate that to on the American side is, you know, even though the North won the um, Civil War, um, the Union did, it is the Confederacy who has the memory, um, and so I kind of see that also happening in terms of the um, Haitian Revolution, and in the case of um, Christoph and his accompli- accomplishments, and how they're just for the most part forgotten.
0: Yeah, and I, but I think one of the things that that I find interesting, and this is as, as I mentioned earlier, was was my great hook in, in into this. He was also the one who who left the the greatest kind of built legacy. Uh, with the construction of the citadel. And uh, all across Haiti, actually, you'll find networks of forts that were built just after independence because the plan was, um, as it was sort of in the first months of independence, they they realized that the French could come back almost at any moment. Um, So the plan was that if the French arrived, uh, they would set fire to the ports and retreat into the interior, which they fortified. So the citadel is the greatest of all these forts. But... But, um but christoph was in charge of building many of them across uh, across the north and it's a sort of a wonderful thing to go and visit some of these because some of thems now in, in great disrepair or, or sort of wildly overgrown and, and, and neglected um but he he is the one who has built who has who has left that 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 great legacy I and mean, particularly in in northern haiti he's sort of still referred to as sort of the great builder um because he, he's left this incredible sort of physical mark on
1: he left his mark in many ways. I definitely agree on Haiti and its history. Um, and for him to be so forgotten, which I'm very grateful for you from helping to rescue him from obscurity, uh, it's a nice welcome to be able to have a greater understanding of who he was. So I want to ask you, what do you want readers to take away from the book?
0: Um, well, hopefully a good read. Uh, that's not for me to judge, um, but it was very important that I wrote this as a trade book rather than an academic book, because I think this is a story um, that, you know, I would like as many people as possible uh, to know. And it's although, you know, it's it's based on very, very deep archival research. Um, you know, hopefully it's 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 a great story as well. I mean, the Haitian, the story of the Haitian Revolution is just such a, a, a dramatic and an almost unimaginable story um and you know throughout my research realizing that that story then continued um you know into that early independence period um was just a, a complete revelation to me as it was you know on my first visit to Haiti back all those those years ago um so I really well I guess the one thing I would like people to say is just a great understanding of the accomplishments of, of Haiti um and of course, I think we all know that in the the modern media today Haiti is treated in a particular way uh the way uh it's written about uh the way it's dismissed um and I just think there needs there it's always a work of trying to counter that trying to rebalance that um because it is the most astonishing history um and the reason why the Haitian Revolution I think has um traditionally and historically been been silenced in western narratives is because of the incredible accomplishment that that these enslaved people could overthrow one of the most powerful empires on the earth, beat two more on the battlefield, and proclaim their independence um What a proud and inspiring national story to to have and and I think you know anything that helps in, even if it's only in the, the tiniest way, um, you know, is it, only a good thing. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful uh, for the time that I've spent in Haiti and the time that I've spent learning from my Haitian friends and from Haitian historians um, to, to help to, to, to bring that, that story out a, a tiny a little bit more.
1: And you did that magnificently so I want to ask you what are you working on next
0: (laughs) I have I have two projects uh, that are currently vying uh, for my attention which are in different stages um of research uh but neither of which are ready to be discussed publicly Uh, (laughs) but i hope in the next year um these will shake out a little bit um and i can move forward but i but i have been in the archives recently um working on on these new on these new ideas
1: See, we have, you know, turned you into someone who enjoys the archives that and the archives are not from everyone for everyone, as you know, um, it can be a daunting, challenging space to walk into. But you have there's so much wealth of information and knowledge that's there. And I know as I'm reading and writing through my own sources, I enjoy it. Um, and now the archive in so many ways um, it's changed a lot in where we are 2023. So, um, so that is awesome. So, Mr. Klammer, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: It's been a real pleasure talking with you.
1: Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Black Crown. I promise you it is for academics. It's for non-academics to learn more about Haiti and their accomplishments. I mean, it is one of those books, and I know from my own experience, I started reading it at 9 o'clock at night, and I was up till 2 a.m. actually, because I wanted to finish it. I just couldn't put it down. Um, You don't have to follow my example. You can read it at your leisure, but I say if you go out and pick up a copy, it will be something that you will not regret doing.